Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. Man, what a good day, church. I tell you what, if we went home right now, we've had an awesome day already. We've worshiped, we've praised, we've baptized, we've seen people come home. That's a great day, it's a good day. I wanna let you know about something really cool that Phil and I got to do this last week. Um, this last week, Phil and I got to go to an event downtown that was hosted by the Pregnancy Center of Toledo. And on all of your behalf, we got to accept an award, I have it right here, an award for a legacy for life of a lifetime of giving to the Pregnancy Center. We were one of the first, not one of, we were the first church recognized for a legacy of life giving because you have given over $100,000 to the Pregnancy Center of Toledo. And I want you to know that that is an incredible legacy of what you are doing in our city, of your incredible generosity. They do incredible work standing with parents that find themselves with an unexpected pregnancy and changing the narrative on that story, empowering women to say, yes, you are capable, you are able to do this thing, teaching them how to be co-parents and teaching them how to partner in other groups. So I just wanna thank you for your incredible giving, your incredible generosity, for being the kind of church that just continually shows up in every possible way for our city. They can be really honest. Phil and I felt a little bit weird at, at the event that they held. We felt a little bit weird receiving the award because a legacy of giving like that started so long before we were the ones who initiated any of it. We inherited a legacy of giving. You're the ones who have continually given. We have founding pastors who started a church with a heart and a culture for generosity and for showing up, and we just got to step in and be the ones to see so much of the incredible work. And that's so true for us so often is we get to go and see and talk to leaders of other community groups in our city and hear about the incredible impact that you're making every time you show up for a VOW weekend or hear about the incredible impact that these organizations are having across the life of our city. Ways that people are showing up to make a difference and to make change and to make sure that we can fill in all of the gaps and that the love of Jesus is practically demonstrated across the breadth of this city that we live in. And I love this city. It is such an honor to serve here. It's such an honor to see and to be part of everything that's happening in our city. Um, I didn't always think that. I didn't always feel that way. I actually thought that Toledo was kind of gonna be like, after I grew up and moved away and moved back, like kind of a, like a short blip on the story of where 
I was going. Phil and I had a different plan in mind for ourselves. After we got married, uh, we had put together a great plan for our life about what our life was going to look like and what we thought God wanted us to do. We knew that that we wanted to do something to do with ministry. We knew that we, we had a heart to see people, uh, you know, encounter Jesus, that our lives were gonna be about declaring Jesus and helping people encounter the purpose and the wholeness that comes when you meet him. And, and like so many of you just did for the first time, we knew that that was what our lives was gonna be about. So this was our game plan that we put together for ourselves. We were gonna move to Toledo after we got married. We were gonna take like two years to kind of get steady on what it means to be married while we were here. We were gonna purchase a home during that time and we were gonna like work our tails off to pay as much of that mortgage down as we possibly could. That way, when God sent us overseas somewhere, because that's what we thought we were gonna be doing. When God sent us somewhere overseas where some of you probably are, today, then we would be able to rent out the house that we own to create, generate a little bit of income because being sent overseas isn't always an income producing form of ministry. And then that's what God was going to do. And we were just in Toledo for a minute. And then we started falling in love with Toledo. And God started showing us all of the wonderful things that are happening in this city, all of the incredible groups and organizations, all of the incredible people. And we fell in love with the people in this city. And we fell in love with the revitalization and the rebuilding that's happening in this city. And we fell in love with this place. And I love being from Toledo. I love this city. It's kind of an interesting story, the history of Toledo. I won't take you back through all of the details that I've been researching over the last little bit, but Toledo has a bit of an interesting history and a bit of an interesting kind of like current history. So over the years after Toledo was officially established as an official city named Toledo, it kind of drudged along for a little bit, but in the late 1800s, around the 1880s, it was positioned really well by some decisions like the Erie Canal being set up and railroads being set up all throughout the city that by the mid to late 1880s, Toledo was really booming. The Industrial Revolution had come, and Toledo was really taking off in some, some great directions. Manufacturers were moving to Toledo, and all kinds of industry was moving into the Toledo area and was building up. There were uh, factories shooting up everywhere, breweries shooting up everywhere. They were building tires in Toledo. They were building um, carriages. We weren't building cars yet. We were building carriages, but we were preparing for Willys, who would later become Jeep, to move to Toledo and also become a major part of the fabric Toledo by the late 1880s was was a vibrant living beating pumping thriving city that was seen as one of the large industrial cities of the Midwest there were uh, uh, Toledo was only second to Chicago in the number of trains coming into the city daily by 1888 is what the the measurements say it was thriving. There were people migrating and immigrating to Toledo from all over because of how much life and industry and economy was happening. Many of the fun things we get to do over summer, many of the many fun festivals that we go to, like the Polish festival and the German festival and the Greek festival that happen all throughout downtown Toledo can be traced back to this time 
in Toledo's history as it began to thrive and attract talent from all over the world. And by the time we got to the roaring 20s, nowhere was positioned better than Toledo. Toledo led the way in the roaring 20s in terms of thriving cities who were beating and pulsing and leading the direction of what was happening. Some of the historians that I read even said that Toledo may have kicked off the 1920s for the rest of the country starting a little bit early in 1919 because of all of the great things that were happening in the city. It was a city alive. Buildings were being built and people were moving and things were being made and industry and innovation was happening. And then the 1930s and the Great Depression and World War II swept the country and it impacted Toledo in the same way that it impacted much of the rest of the country and things began to close and people began to move. And Toledo puttered along a little bit for the next couple of decades, battling with things like suburban sprawl and all of the things that much of the nation was facing until it hit the 1970s when it took a really hard hit with much of the Midwest in what's now referred to as the Rust Belt era when groups who were manufacturing in this area began to move out of the area and it really depleted the life that the city had originally been built on. And the city started to decline and more and more people moved out of the downtown area. More and more people moved away. And I know you're like, did I come here for a history lesson? Did I get lost? I'm going somewhere, I promise. And the next couple decades saw more and more decline to the downtown Toledo area until there were skeletons of buildings and potholes and empty spaces. If you walked all around downtown, most people had moved out of it. A majority of people who lived in the suburbs around Toledo avoided going downtown unless they really, really, really had to. Like to get to the Social Security office, which refused to move from downtown. Except for... By the year 2000, some really innovative, insightful, hopeful, future-focused people took a look at that skeleton of a city and said, what if we rebuilt it? What if we built again on what's already there? What if we reimagined what it meant to be from Toledo and they began some really intentional decisions about investments and about moving some, some organizational headquarters to the downtown Toledo area. And if you've been here for a few decades, one that you probably remember is they moved our baseball team, the Mud Hens, from here, not far from our mommy campus building to the center of downtown. And that began to attract more business. That began to attract more people. And over the last couple of decades, they have made some farther and farther headways in seeing Toledo come back to life. And this is kind of the time period when Phil and I entered and looked around and said, we love to be part of things that are building. We love to be part of things that are reviving. We love to be a part of seeing something come back to life again. And I love hearing the stories of these people who looked back where other people saw devastation, where other people only saw history, where other people only saw stories of what once was, and other people only saw what had been and looked with sorrow and looked with sadness and looked with regret. And instead, this small group of people looked and said, I see something different. 
What if we built it again? What if we dreamed again? What if there's a future here still? We're starting a new series today. The name of our series is Build Again. Build Again. I want you to look over your life and I want you to begin to dream about building again. Build again in the places where you feel like you've been robbed. Build again in the places that you think have been battered. Build again in the places that you feel like have been worn down. If we look back over the last two years, all of us can point to something that we feel like we've lost, some of us more and some of us less, but we cannot look back and say that there has not been a seismic change in the reality that we're looking at, that there has been a dramatic shift in the world that we live in and the things that we know and the things that we thought that we built on have moved, have shifted, are no longer there. And where some are looking with loss, where some are looking and thinking about all that was and all that once had been, and some are looking and seeing torn down, broken, devastated places, I believe that there are people who are looking and saying, but what if we build again? What if we build something new? What if we build in that place again? What if it just takes a little bit of intentional decision? What if it just takes a little bit of intentional investment? What if the skeletons are still there and all we have to do is lean into this anew? I believe God is calling us to look at the devastated places in our lives, in our cities, in our church, in our communities, in your neighborhoods and say, build again. Don't give up on it. Build again. So in this series, we're going to be looking at the life of a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was in the, oh, oh there was so much agreement. I got like double, double thumbs up from up here and a yes, yes. <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't always, you know, the Old Testament doesn't always get that kind of feedback. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah is the leader that didn't know that he was a leader, but he had the ability to see an opportunity where other people only saw devastation. He had the ability to look at a place that was devastated and broken down, and instead of just looking at it and saying, woe is me, and, and worrying about once had been, Nehemiah saw a future. We're going to look at the life of Nehemiah because I believe that like Nehemiah, there's leadership on the inside of you that you don't even know is there yet. That there is a leader waiting to stand up on the inside of you. That God has positioned you for this hour, for this moment, for this place. That there is a solution waiting to rise up on the inside of you if you can just see it. If you can just see what he has placed in front of you. If you can just see the opportunity inside of the devastation, there is a leader that will rise up in you just like what rose up in Nehemiah. I want us to look at this scripture. It's from Nehemiah 2 and 18. This is gonna be the core scripture for throughout our series. Nehemiah verse 2 and 18. If you wanna turn there, like I said, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. 
He comes right after the book of Ezra. Fun fact, if you want some Bible trivia, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. I don't know why, but eventually they decided to separate them into two separate books. If you are doing a Bible study, I highly encourage you to read Ezra and Nehemiah together because they are telling one story together. Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to jump to Nehemiah 2 and 18. And it says, And I told them of the hand of my God. What are you telling people of? What are you telling? Are you telling them of the devastation? Are you telling them of all that you've lost? Are you telling them of the things that are broken down? Are you telling them of the things that you want to criticize? Are you telling them of the things that you're sorry about? Or are you telling them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king that had spoken to me and they said, This is the people now responding to me at Nehemiah. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. They prepared to build again. Father God, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for everything that you have done in this place. And I thank you for this word that you have spoken to me. I ask you to help me to articulate it clearly. I ask for all of us, God, for hearts to hear you. God, make us good soil for your word to be planted in our lives. And we ask that it bears fruit in the days, in the weeks, in the years to come, God, as we continue walking in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is happening here? What is happening with Nehemiah? Nehemiah has come to this place where he has seen the devastation of everything that has happened. How did we get here in Nehemiah's story? How did we get here in Nehemiah's story where I want to ask you the question, what do you see? What do you see when you look at the devastation? What do you see when you look at the broken down places? What do you see when you look at what once was do you see an opportunity or you do you just see the destruction because nehemiah found himself in a very specific space where he was asking the question what do i see when i look at this what am i going to hold on to when i look at this thing nehemiah was in a place that was devastating for him and for what is happening in nehemiah's life well you have to understand a little bit about the story of the people of israel which is that they had inhabited their own land the land that god had given them the place that god had given them the thing the promises that god had given them do you have any promises that God has given you over the last years but then the children of Israel found themselves in a place where they were removed from the place of their promise they were sent into exile they were overcome by other foreign armies and they were now in exile in Babylon and they find themselves wandering about the place that God had brought them from and Nehemiah finds himself in a place where someone comes and brings him word about what had been They come and they tell him about the temple and the wall that had been standing in Jerusalem and when they come and they tell him they tell him that the wall has been burned down 
that it has been torn down, that the gates are in peril, that the wall is in peril, that the temple is in peril, that nothing is standing. The thing that had meant so much to him, the thing that had been precious to him. I don't know if your family finds itself in a space of destruction. I don't know if that job that you have clung to, that you have worked for, finds itself in a place that is so devastating. You find yourself carrying five jobs at one time. You find yourself looking around saying, I don't know if we're going to make it one more quarter. The place was absolutely devastated. And they bring Nehemiah word of it. They bring Nehemiah information about what exactly it looked like. If you want to go back and find out just how bad it was, the very last chapter in 2 Chronicles tells you everything that happened to the wall. You can go back and read it later this week. But they had burned it. They had torn it down. The thing that his people had worked and had built for was torn down. And it says that they bring Nehemiah word. And I want us to look at what Nehemiah's response was when he heard word of what had happened to the place that what did he see when he looked at it? Nehemiah 1 and 4 says, as soon as I heard the words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned. As soon as I heard the words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned. What I want you to hear is that Nehemiah didn't jump past just how painful this season was for him. Nehemiah didn't try and run past just how devastating it was to him to hear that the walls that his family had built for generations found themselves torn down and battered and broken, that the place had been burned and had been shattered to the ground. Nehemiah didn't run past that moment. He didn't jump. This is not the power of positive thinking stories from Nehemiah. No, the first thing it says Nehemiah did, is he sat down and he wept and he mourned for the thing that had happened. God is not calling you into a faith that says, don't feel that feeling that you're feeling. You don't have to hold on to that. No, no, he's calling you to a faith that says, you have to feel just how much that has hurt you. You have to feel just how painful this has been. You have to look back and talk about just how devastating it is that you worked for years for something only to drain the entire account because you lost your job. You have to feel that it says that Nehemiah sat down and he wept and he mourned. I want to ask you, have you taken a moment to weep and to mourn for all that you have lost? Have you taken a moment to weep and to mourn for the things that you have run past in your life? You can't always rose color the light and the lens that you are looking at. When Jesus came to Lazarus' grave, what did it say? It says that he wept. He felt the pain of this moment. He felt the sorrow of this moment. He felt the devastation of this moment. Perhaps the miracle that you are seeking, you haven't yet realized because you haven't quite felt the pain of the moment. Perhaps it was Jesus' ability to move with compassion, to feel the pain of a moment, to feel the devastation of a moment, to feel the sorrow of a moment that released in him 
the miraculous signs and wonders that flowed through him. Perhaps, people of God, the reason that you are not seeing the miracle that God wants to flow through you is because you're trying to stop up your well and stop feeling the thing. Stop feeling the moment. Stop feeling the pain when that pain is an indicator of the direction of the divine that is moving through you. He sat down and he wept and he mourned. But there was a direction to his weeping and mourning because it says, I weeped and I mourned for days and I continued in fasting and prayer before the God of heaven. The place that you direct your weeping and your mourning has a lot to do with the outcome of your weeping and your mourning. He took his weeping and his mourning to a place of prayer and of fasting. He took it before God. He cried out before God and he continued in prayer. He continued in the place of the presence of God. He continued in the place of the power of God. When he felt it the heaviest, when he felt it the worst, he ran to Jesus. He ran home to the Father. He ran directly into the presence of God. And it says he continued in prayer. He sought out God and he continued to cry. Prayer will revive your spirit. It will strengthen your faith. It will help you get your hopes back up when you feel like all hope is lost. It will allow you to focus in on the thing that God is speaking to you. There is a power that comes in prayer. And Nehemiah went to the place of prayer. It's part of why we start out every year with a time of prayer and fasting. Why when we get to January, on January 10th as a church family, we are going to pray and fast for 21 days together so we can focus our attention and say, God, we want to focus on the thing that you have for us. And from that place of prayer and of fasting, God spoke to Nehemiah and he began to cry out and he began to pray in the direction of God. If you have time, I want to encourage you to go and read the prayer that he prays to God. It's a powerful, beautiful thing. He begins to get directional with God and he says, you are glorified and you are high above and you are the God above all gods. He exalts the name of God and he goes on for several verses praying and crying out to God in that prayer was preparing him for the place that God was taking him because God had positioned him for this moment. Nehemiah 3, 2 through 5, this is the moment that God has positioned Nehemiah for. You have to understand that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was a slave in Babylon and he was a cupbearer to the king. That was the role that he had. He came and he served the king. And two and three, it says, I said to the king, so the king has asked him, Nehemiah's come in and the king's noticed that Nehemiah is not feeling good and the king said, hey, what's up? And so Nehemiah says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be the worst? He ran to Jesus. He ran home to the Father. He ran directly into the presence of God. And it says he continued in prayer. He sought out God and he continued to cry. Prayer will revive your spirit. It will strengthen your faith. It will help you get your hopes back up when you feel like all hope is lost. It will allow you to focus in on the thing that God is speaking to you. There is a power that comes in prayer. And Nehemiah went to the place of prayer. It's part of why we start out every year with a time of prayer and fasting. 
Why, when we get to January, on January 10th, as a church family, we are going to pray and fast for 21 days together so we can focus our attention and say, God, we want to focus on the thing that you have for us. And from that place of prayer and of fasting, God spoke to Nehemiah and he began to cry out and he began to pray in the direction of God. If you have time, I want to encourage you to go and read the prayer that he prays to God. It's a powerful, beautiful thing. He begins to get directional with God and he says, you are glorified and you are high above and you are the God above all gods. He exalts the name of God and he goes on for several verses praying and crying out to God in that prayer was preparing him for the place that God was taking him because God had positioned him for this moment. Nehemiah 3, 2 through 5, this is the moment that God has positioned Nehemiah for. You have to understand that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was a slave in Babylon and he was a cupbearer to the king. That was the role that he had. He came and he served the king. And two and three, it says, I said to the king, so the king has asked him, Nehemiah's come in, and the king's noticed that Nehemiah is not feeling good, and the king said, hey, what's up? And so Nehemiah says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be the moment that he was in? He had a solution when he came. When the king asked him, he had a solution already in mind. He had a solution, if you read about what, he could go and return and do and rebuild the place. When the king asked him, what would you have me do? He said, send me back. Do you have a solution ready? People who build again, a church who builds again is solution-oriented in our thinking, in our action, and in our involvement are those who run into the places of devastation and say, I have a plan about what we can do for this. I have an idea on how we can fix this. I've been working on some solutions. I've been working on some ideas. I've been coming. When they see those who build again coming, they see them coming with great excitement and with great anticipation because those who build again are those who come bringing solutions those who come bringing answers those who come with an idea with a plan I love a pastor I know recently said that the critic and the leader see the same thing but the leader has decided to get involved the leader has decided it doesn't take much to be a critic we all can see the places that are not working We all can see the things that need attention. We all can see the broken down walls. We all can see the gaps. We all can see the spaces that need attention. But leaders who decide to build again come with solutions and say, we're going to get involved in this. We're not going to stand on the sidelines and point out when you should have caught the ball. We're not going to stand on the sidelines and point out how you should have weaved when you wove. No, leaders who bring solutions, who build again are those who get involved and Nehemiah got involved and he said I have a solution in mind and he knew that he was positioned on purpose he knew that God had placed him in that place for a purpose for this moment where has God put you do you see it as a solution or do you see it as a problem? Do you see it as a pit stop or do you see it as the answer? Do you see, what do you see in the place that God has placed you? 
And I love that little line. It says, and he prayed. Except for it doesn't look like he went to pray because he also continued to answer. It says, and he prayed. Have you ever been in a moment where you just had to say, Jesus, I need you right now. Right here, you keep it in your mind. You keep it because someone had, had come to him and had said, and, and if he handles this conversation wrong, it could result in his life. But he wasn't willing to back down for it. And so instead, he just, it says he prayed quickly. What it tells me is that Nehemiah lived his life in what John would later call and describe in Jesus' words being connected to the vine. That he lived connected to the presence of God, to the word of God. That he lived a life and a habit of connection to the word and to the place of prayer. That he was able to pray a quick prayer in a moment and give the king an answer. To be honest, this is what I want to say. This is where I'm trying to get. It doesn't make you mature and spiritual that you have to go away into a time of intercession every time someone asks you to do something or every time an opportunity is presented to you. There are times to consider it, but we should be living in such a rhythm of connection to the vine and such a rhythm of life with Jesus that when we come into a moment and an opportunity is presented and the king says to him, what would you have us do? You say, God, bring me your words right now. Yes, I feel a yes in my spirit to move in that direction. Yes, there's someone who can sign up. Yes, there's someone who can give into that. Yes, I can pray for you today. He lived in a place where he was ready and waiting and anticipating what God was speaking and doing and the place that he had positioned in him. If we are going to build again, we have to have specific times of prayer where we seek God. We have to have a lifestyle of prayer where we pray after him, but we also have to know how to respond in a moment when the opportunity opens. We have to know how to say, I live connected to the vine. I did, this is the thing. We live like our vine is compartmentalized in our life. We go to the vine and we go to our morning time of prayer, our evening time of prayer, and then we say, okay, cool, I'll be back tomorrow. Disconnect from the vine and walk away to go do the rest of our life because that's just a time block on my calendar and that's just a thing that I go to and that's just one of the many things that I check off in my regular habits. But Jesus didn't say, come to me and leave me and come to me. He said, live a life connected to the vine. When you live a life connected to the vine, you don't worry so much about if you're out of step with the vine. Because when I'm connected to the vine and I start walking a little bit too far, the vine pulls me back into the place he always had for me. When I live a life connected to the vine, I have to stay within the space that he has. We have to live a life connected to his presence that allows us to respond, to adapt, to be agile in a moment so that we can build again. And the king grants him his request. It's almost unfathomable. It's the thing that he thought, there's no way this could possibly happen. But the king tells him, yes. And the king sends Nehemiah off. And he sends Nehemiah off to do this incredible work. And Nehemiah gets straight to work. Nehemiah gets into action. He goes and he starts making plans and he starts gathering people and he starts inspecting all of the things. I want to encourage you to go and to look at verse 12 because in verse 12 it says that he goes out and he's starting to face some opposition. 
And I want you to remember that just because you're in the will of God, just because you're in the plan of God, just because you're in the purpose of God, doesn't mean that there's not going to be opposition, doesn't mean that there's not going to be difficulty, doesn't mean that there's not going to be fear in it. And so Nehemiah goes out in the middle of the night to inspect the wall, and it reminds me of Gideon who went out in the middle of the night to do the will of God and by Gideon's own testimony he says he was afraid of his friends and his family so he went by cloak of night and maybe that sounds fear filled to you there was certainly fear in it but it sounds tenacious to me because it tells me about people who were going after what God had spoken to them what God had shown them with everything in them and they said if there's opposition I'm still gonna make it happen and if there's fear on the inside of me I'm still gonna make it happen and if there's criticism that's coming against me I'm still gonna make it happen I will still build again and Nehemiah goes out and he inspects the wall and he starts gathering people and he gets people around him and as he begins to cast this picture of going and building the wall they say let's rise and let's build again. I want you to know that this is the kind of church that you are. A church that builds again. A church that looks at broken places and sees opportunity where others only see devastation and disappointment. You are a church that looks at empty homes and sees the families that will gather there. You are a church that sees a single parent and visualize them at their graduation. You are the kind of church that sees the hungry and sees them sharing meals around tables. You are the kind of church that shows up and says where others only see devastation, we see an opportunity and we have a solution and we are coming to build again I know you lost your job let's build it again I know your family is hurting let's build it again I know your relationships have taken hurt let's build it again I know your neighborhood isn't what it was let's build it again you are a church who keeps showing up who sees the 400 different next generation leaders youth and kids who have come into this place and you don't see inconvenience and you don't see loud noise you see culture influencers being shaped with the message and the declaration of who Jesus is you are those who build again church you are those who build again this year and some of the midst of the hardest most questionable most unprecedented times we have ever seen we have seen 40 people baptized this year and more again today come on you build again we have seen 21 kids dedicated throughout this last year we have seen 203 people engage with the vision that God has given us through their financial giving for the very first time throughout this year we have seen over 200 first time connections visitors who have come and have connected for the very first time whether in-house or online across this year and we have seen 39 people let us know that they have made a yes decision to following Jesus and more again today you are a church that builds again but what do you see I see more 
I see more yet ahead. I see more people coming, and I see a church who is ready to build. A church that is ready to build again. I see a church that sees empty chairs and sees their neighbor who should be in that seat. I see a church who sees baptisms and thinks about the next person that's going to make that public declaration. I see a church that looks at our city and sees, that looks at the places where things have been broken and things have been devastated and says, let's build again. It is ready to hope again. A church that is ready to dream. A church that sees and the mission and the vision on the other side of those things. A church that doesn't just see a camera operator that sees a digital missionary who is sending the message. Jesus told us to go into all the world, everywhere that we seekers. Public, you are a church that builds again, that builds again. The last two years have left some devastation. The last two the things that have happened, disappointment in ourselves and the ways that we have responded to take it. And we are going to build again. And the mission and the vision on the other side of those things, a church that doesn't just see a camera operator, that sees a digital missionary who is sending the message Jesus told us to go into all the world. And we are going everywhere that we can possibly get. A church that sees doubters and sees believers. A church that sees seekers and sees finders. A church that sees believers and sees people finishing their race well. You are a church that builds again, that builds again. The last two years have left some devastation. The last two years have left some broken places. The last two years have left some disappointment in all of our lives in different ways. Disappointment and things that have happened. Disappointment in ourselves and the ways that we have responded. And we're going to feel that. And we're going to recognize that moment. And we're going to take it to the place of prayer. And then we are going to be prepared for the opportunity that is presenting itself in front of us. And we are going to build again.